Well, good morning. Welcome to the chapel this morning. Uh, I want you to take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18 in a new series that we are beginning today uh, for a, just a, a few different sermons on the subject of forgiveness. So as you sang this morning, as you think about uh, the reality of how God pursues after you and I, there's something quite majestic about God's forgiveness for us. The way that he runs after us, the way that he calls us from the depths of our sin in order that we might have a life that is freed from sin so that we can enjoy this forgiveness that God has has allowed us to experience together. Matthew 18, as, as we look at this particular chapter, we recognize that contextually speaking, Jesus is now shifting in his mindset of this public presentation of all of his gospel ministry and the work of salvation that he had come to offer. And he is now coming to a portion of his ministry life where he is desirous to get away with his disciples. His focus now turns to parables and turns to these elements where he's gathering his 12 at various occasions, bringing them on the fireside chats saying, guys, I've got to have you know something about these particular topics. This topic of forgiveness is a very important topic Jesus desired for his disciples to understand. This morning as we as we launch this particular su- on this particular subject of forgiveness, we we can only maybe grab the surface of the reality of how significant this parable is. It is the only time that this parable is used. It's the only gospel uh, of all four gospels that this particular parable you will you will find it in Matthew. Now you're going to look at your notes this morning. You're going to see different portions of this on the back of your bulletin. And the, we're going to talk about the purpose and the power of this parable. And we're going to, we're going to end up with the predicament. But I, but I want to begin today as part one of this particular, uh, this particular text of Scripture. Because uh, if you look at that, I'm going to stop prematurely right before this. Because there's no possible way to get everything done and communion at the same time. I'm doing that because I love you. We would be here all afternoon because the richness of this parable is so powerful. I don't want to rush or skip through portions of this so that you and I get the real feel and understanding of the magnitude of the reason why Jesus would bring his disciples and talk about this particular parable. We'll just scratch the surface of it today, which means... Uh, we're, we're going to be coming back to this particular parable next week. But Jesus is now shifting that ministry focus. I can remember a number of years ago hearing of a church where there was an individual who had broken faith with another individual in the body of Christ who had covenanted together with this person and had been with them for years and years living out what seemed to be a commitment to a particular covenant that they had made. And it came to find out over the course of time that the individual was being unfaithful to the covenant which they had agreed to. In this particular situation, all of a sudden, things started to to come to the surface where all kinds of sin was involved and all kinds of hurt and sorrow and uh, entrenched desires 
uh, that were going on and weighing heavily in the life of the individual. And I can remember on so many occasions hearing about the circumstance, recognizing this is, this is terrible, this, this can't happen. Forgiveness needs to take place. Restoration needs to be had in this, in this relationship. Only to hear later on uh, through a contact where the individual would then write an email and say, it doesn't matter anymore. I have extended myself beyond any degree I desire. I will not forgive them no matter what. I know what the church must do. I know what will have to happen as a response of this, but I will not forgive. Over time, the covenantal break as a result that ensued made its way all the way through up the church disciplinary process. Only to come before the body and, and have to hear people say on varying degrees of their maturity when all of this began to, to, to hit the, the, the ears of the body and all of this was going on and, and someone said, uh, uh, this new believer who had just came to faith not that long ago and someone said, well, how many times does this person really have to forgive anyway? Isn't there a limit to this? This is godlessness. How did, why do they have to endure this? At that particular moment in the life of the body, you see these seasoned, well-intended, mature believers looking around, can't even believe what they would hear in their ears that day. Looking, and I, can, and, and, and I remember hearing them say to, to whisper to each other, 70 times seven, where is this not clear? But you recognize, and I recognize in the life of the body, that forgiveness is a very challenging topic. Over the years as I've pastored, it probably is one of the most, uh, is probably the most uh, dove into subjects, whether it's from a discipleship standpoint and personal relationships. Life in the body requires, in order to have unity, it requires that people forgive one another. Do you realize that? But you realize, if you've lived long enough in the life of the body, that people will begin to play fast and loose with the idea and the concept of forgiveness that the Bible brings to us. But they also get entrenched in realities where they convince themselves that they have a justifiable reason why they don't want to forgive. And believe at the same time that they can just be a very genuine believer at the same time. And what this parable does for us as we walk through these in uh, these two-part these two sermon is to help us realize that that should not be said of the genuine believer in Christ. Now, what we're going to build is we're going to build a theology of forgiveness in the Bible. Now, if you've ever done Bible study and Bible study methods, it becomes really critical to understand how you build a theology, Theology is built off an interpretation of a particular text of scripture, which is why this morning when we come, we say, open your Bible, let's go to a particular text. Out of those texts, we begin to interpret and begin to see various categories of things that come out in the Bible. And these get grouped into various uh, ways that we interpret them. They get grouped into what we understand as a biblical theology of a number of different categories, one of which we will discuss the theology of forgiveness. 
which will then get accompanied, accompanied by a systematized perspective to talk about forgiveness and God's mercy. And one thing you will notice about our conversation about forgiveness is that forgiveness is always important because it puts God's mercy on display. So when we play, or if we were to play fast and loose with the subject and interpretation of forgiveness in the Bible, we are tampering with a theological category of the very mercies of God. Now, how many of you in here, just by a raise of hands, love the mercies of God? I mean, look at that. We don't want to mess this up. Because what is it about that? What is it about the mercies of God for you and I? that so grip our soul and enrich our lives, causing us in des uh, this desire to restore and mend relationships. It's a theology about God that is displayed through the forgiveness and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. But I've been around long enough in pastoral ministry to recognize all kinds of misconceptions that concern and revolve around the subject of forgiveness that we are going to try to uh, work through over the course of the series as a whole, so we won't answer all these questions today. But these misconceptions of forgiveness will help you understand why this theology of forgiveness is so important for us. For example, here's a misconception that I often hear in the lives of people and in their relationships, uh, and especially individually. They'll say something like this, well, I know the Lord has forgiven me, but the problem, pastor, is I just don't seem to be able to forgive myself. And a, and a misconception of forgiveness and a responsibility often gets conveyed that I trust in God, the problem is I just don't trust in me. Well, you need to trust in God because you can't trust in you. Forgiveness is not Forgiveness is about God. It's not about you. It's a way that his, his mercy is on display. You are the, the, the object of beneficiary to the work of Jesus Christ displayed in the theology of forgiveness. I often hear this one. Now, what's your problem? Why don't you just forgive and forget? Just forgive it and forget it. I've heard so many times in marriages, people will come and they'll be burdened to their soul where they'll say, they just won't forgive and forget. And as a result of that, we just go through cycle of conflict after conflict after conflict. And if they would just forgive and forget, but they always just tend to bring it up in my presence again and again and again, and it drives me crazy. Well, you recognize that the difficulty of forgiveness is because have you noticed this about yourself? When someone hurts you or sins against you, the problem with this reality is that you've, you can't forgive and forget. The most difficult part of forgiveness is because you can't forget. In fact, the theology of God and the mercies of God, it forces us to ask a question. Is that how the mercies of God works? Does he just forget our sin and he doesn't know about it anymore the moment I ask for forgiveness and repent of my sin? This is often the interpretation that people give to say of the psalmist, well, he forgives my sins and they're as far as the east is from the west. We're gonna touch on what does that mean when it comes to forgive and forget? Another misconception that often comes is something like this. Well, I said my sorry. Why can't you just accept that? I'm sorry 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is sorrow equivalent to forgiveness or is sorrow the emotion that is accompanied with a genuine heart attitude of repentance that moves a person towards forgiveness? Sorrow alone doesn't mean forgiveness has occurred. We often get accompanied by saying, Sorry, I remember watching my kids do this with one another and we would, they would have some argument or conflict between them and as little children, you're pulling them together. You, you, get over here. Now say you're sorry. Sorry. Well, that was so genuine. Should I have just stopped there as a parent and said, oh good, see now we're all happy, now go back and play. Is that resolved or is that forced? See, an apology or I'm sorry often doesn't reach the depths of what the Bible declares to be forgiveness. Now, as we build our theology, no theology is, is, is complete without at least getting an understanding of how God, through the course of his revelation, has, has uh, dove into this. Now, as we, as we dive into this, uh, we're going to go to a number of different texts, and we're going to land, and we're going to end up in Matthew 18. So get your Bibles, because get your tablet, whatever you're using. Go to Genesis chapter 3, because this is really critical for us. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, don't you? See, forgiveness was so important that it, it makes its way to every place in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And I want to walk this morning just briefly through a number of different areas where we're building this understanding in theology of forgiveness. And then we'll land with one verse in Matthew 18 to begin with. And then we're going to get to the, all the rest of the parable uh, in the following Sunday. Genesis chapter 3, you notice this, this, this whole entire comment that goes on after the fall in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 21. After this whole incident happens and God is reprimanding the, the, the serpent and the woman and the man, and he gets to verse 20, and it says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. From the very beginning of sin... When Adam and Eve reached out, they got enticed by, their, by the mindset and deceived by the serpent, and their hearts stirred affections for something God said no to, and they reached out and they took the fruit. Immediately, their relationship with God was broken. The only way for the relationship to be restored would be that God does something on their behalf. And do you notice the, the implication of what he has done? He said that God, the Lord, made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He initially, right at the very beginning of Genesis 3, has to sacrifice an animal. There was a blood sacrifice that would go into it so that they could be covered. Forgiveness is all about repentance and trusting in the work of the covering of Jesus Christ, who his work has paid the price for your sin and mine, all past, present, and future sin. Now, this is a real joy, by the way, believers. There is not a single sin, past, present, or future, that the blood of Christ has not paid for. Which means that gives you the freedom according to Hebrews chapter 10. Why can we go before the throne of grace? And why do we have a great high priest? 
This Jesus who went into the holy of holies and he came out in a once for all sacrifice to sin. Why? So that we could find mercy. See, very, at the very beginning, this was starting to unfold, this Genesis chapter three, verse 15, and since you're there, look at this verse, this very, this very evangelistic component right at the very beginning of, of, of the scripture. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Something had to happen in order for you and I to experience the forgiveness and restoration that God would then launch into redemptive history starting at the fall of mankind so that forgiveness could be sought after. But if you try to do this all on your own, and I would just beg you to, be, as we wrestle through this, God has never asked you and you will never find anywhere in the Bible a command to forgive yourself because you can't. Your blood wasn't spilt. You didn't go through the suffering. You were not holy without blemish. God never asked you to do something that he knew you could never do. That should be a relief for you because then it exposes the reality that the struggle often with forgiveness is not that we should forgive ourselves. The struggle is that we, we fail to trust in the forgiveness that has been granted and that is where we end up failing, even in our sanctification. We fail to trust in the promises that he cleanses us, forgives us, and restores us into right standing with God. All that happened beginning in Genesis. What that tells us, me, what that tells for us and for all of humanity, that the subject in the theology of forgiveness is at the very heart of redemptive history. There's not a single person who has ever lived on the face of this planet from the time of Adam and Eve after this fall and all the children that have been born, every single one of them that have ever lived of all time need forgiveness because sin is now in their heart. They are born with sin. Jeremiah says, in sin did my mother conceive me. They are both born sinners, and Adam, as, his, as the federal headship, he represented the human race. Don't think to yourself, this is Adam's fault, because we're right back in Genesis 3 where the blame game goes on. Forgiveness is always about the, the, the majesty of God's mercy and redemptive history, and that's what you will find as we continue to unfold the parable, that there was mercilessness Turn forward in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 50. This is a remarkable uh, passage in the Old Testament. And I want us to see these, these variety of texts of scripture because they're, they're everywhere as we're building the theology that we have. And this is just a fraction of what we find. Genesis chapter 50, and as you're turning there, we're gonna be in verse 17 to 21. But you remember the story of Joseph and how he uh, dealt with all his brothers and his brothers threw him in a pit and all of a sudden the Midianite traders came and they took him off and they sold him to Potiphar and spent his time in jail and all of a sudden, lo and behold, what do we realize that God was sending Joseph ahead of all of them to provide for them what they would never be able to provide for themselves. Now at the end of the whole entire story and you could only imagine the tension they get around a meal and get around a table and they recognize Joseph is going to find out who they are and he knows what they've done. 
Genesis chapter 50, in verse 17, here's, here's, what the, here's what it says. It says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I, am I in the place of God? What he's saying to them is, Brothers, don't fear. I know you've sinned, but I will not have retribution and revenge for the sin that, I, that you did against me. Instead, I recognize my place, and my place is to forgive. And as we move into Matthew 18, this is said over and over again. The Bible knows nothing of a genuine Christian who is unwilling to forgive. An unwilling Christian, who's, or a Christian who is unwilling to forgive does not exist in the Bible. And in fact, what we're going to find is that if a person says, I won't forgive, there is a question about the genuineness of their understanding of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in their life. And Joseph, banking on the promises that God would send this, God would save him, God was with him, he makes this incredible statement to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You know what, when a brother and sister sins against us and we come to that solution, would, can you say that? That's the call to us. We cannot put ourselves in the authoritative position to say, well, no, I'm not gonna do that. We put ourselves in a humble position and say, I am not in the place of God. I must forgive. And could you imagine the relief of Joseph's brothers at that particular moment? I mean, their families, they know what they did. They sold them into slavery. And all of a sudden, I mean, how gassed they must have been when all of a sudden Joseph returns and he says, it's me, guys. God is going to save you. He sent me here. And Joseph's mindset was not filled with wrath. Could you only imagine the temptation of years of contemplating and running the tape back through your mind thinking, man, so-and-so, Judah, Simeon, all these guys chuck me in a pit. Here I am weeping, and they wouldn't even pull me out. And then they do the worst. They take my coat. They lie to, the, to my father. How easy it would have been for Joseph if he didn't anchor his soul to the promises and the work of God in his life, knowing God was up to something and would be able to say at that point in his life, after years and years of sanctification, am I in the place of God? That happens, brothers and sisters, because he lived out his life in a way that was so consistent with trusting God that he would not take God's place. And when it came to forgiveness, even if he was now, think of what he could have done to them in the position he was in. And how fearful they would have been. And yet the relief that would go around that table, that they would say, Joseph loves us. He has no reason to love us. We've done everything to him that's wrong. And he is showing mercy. Don't Put yourself in the place of God and think yourself the authoritative measured measurement. All of a sudden when you say, you know what? 
Well, I've broken this covenant. All, uh, I know that I've sinned. Well, and the other party who is the offended goes, well, I'll, guess what? I'll let you know when you're forgiven. Do you realize how much weight that that person holds in their hand when all of a sudden they don't trust that God is going to restore? Yes, they have to be wise, but if all of a sudden we become the ones who determine when someone forgiveness, when, when forgiveness takes place, that we are putting ourselves in the place of God. Don't do that, brother and sister. See, forgiveness is important because you don't have access. You, you don't have the ability to give the mercy of Christ. You have the opportunity to display it through the work of forgiveness that has been given to you. Look in the Old Testament Psalms, for example. Psalm, Psalm 51 for a moment. I mean, this is replete in all the Psalms. Uh, David's repentant Psalm in Psalm 51. I have it here behind you, but take notice of it. Turn there. This is an important Psalm. This is a, a Psalm that comes out of David's repentant heart of his sin with Bathsheba. And you can understand, and you've studied the Bible hopefully enough to recognize that this is this hugely despicable act. He takes another man's wife. He tries to lie about it. He brings Uriah home. He sends Uriah to the front lines. And he lived this way. And then, I mean, think about how deceived David was as a king at this moment uh, preceding this psalm. I mean, he was living his life as the, as the, uh, the, the, the mediator to, the, to God's people, and he was not right with God. In fact, he was so deceived in his own mind that God said, okay, to the prophet Nathan, uh, I need you to go confront the king. You think, David, or you think Nathan was like, yes, I was waiting until I was going to get chosen to do that. No. He went in knowing that the king if he wasn't in the right mindset, could do whatever he wanted to him. And Psalm 51 is the, is, the, is the psalm where we understand this repentant spirit of David when Nathan confronts him. And you can go back, read that text and the story. And David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let me offer a suggestion as you build your theology of forgiveness. Forgiveness is always necessary when sin is present. Forgiveness has everything to do with sin, okay? This relieves us in, in this reality that someone has a different preference than you and all of a sudden they expose their preference and they get real fired up about your preference and uh, their preference and all of a sudden they go, well, you need to ask forgiveness for offending my preference. Do you? Now, you might have to ask forgiveness for the way you represented yourself, but a sin is a violation of a missing the mark that God has laid down in the Bible. So when we say, do you forgive me, Lord? Here's what I have violated. You should be able to pinpoint something that you have done that has missed the mark of God's standards. Forgiveness is the way to resolve the sin issue that you and I have. The psalmist says that, blot out my transgressions. Notice this, wash me thoroughly. 
He's moving them to a depth of forgiveness that is beyond behavior. Notice in Psalm 51, you never get the perspective of David going, Lord, just forgive me for my adultery. I'll try to never do that again. Forgive me for killing Uriah. I'll I'll try not to do that again. The problem went so much deeper. It went into his intellect. It went into his affections, the way he was living his life. He had to say, Lord, I know I need forgiveness for the adultery, but the real problem that started is I began to want and desire something that was outside the boundaries, and then I violated your commands by taking another man's wife. You and I need to get good at expressing the way that we ask for forgiveness to the Lord and to one another. Because when forgiveness is necessary, it's because sin is present in the life of an individual, of one or more individuals. And forgiveness is the way to resolve it. Turn to Psalm 86. Very common psalm as we look at this particular psalm. Uh, We'll only look at uh, uh, one particular verse of this psalm. In Psalm chapter 86, which is is a remarkable text of of all of these, and there's so many more in the Psalms, Uh, if you want to study on your own, read the Psalms with an eye to forgiveness of iniquity. Look at Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You want to write some psalms to meditate on? Psalm 103 of God's forgiving nature. Psalm 130, uh, how God hears and is willing to forgive the iniquities of people who have sinned and missed the mark. Well, it just doesn't stop in the psalms, does it? All of a sudden, we're given this entire prophet, and I won't go preach a whole sermon on Jonah, but let me give you a, a taste of this. Why was Jonah such a remarkable book that we need to meditate on is because Jonah could not be a prophet of God who is completely merciless. I mean, is it just kind of put your soul uneasy as you read through the book of Jonah? And, and of course, we always meditate and, and reflect, and of course we should. You can't run from God. Is that the whole message of Jonah? I think not. Can you? No. But the major point of Jonah It happens at the end of Jonah chapter four. And you see this in the life of Jonah. And he gets him all the way there. And what is he doing? He's sitting on the hillside. And what does he want to happen to these Ninevites? Fire and brimstone destruction. And he is upset that God has brought him all the way there. And you know what? Jonah could not be a prophet that would represent a merciful God with a merciless spirit. He set, God sets him on this trajectory so that while he's in the boat and the storm comes and he says, you gotta toss me over. And they're reluctant and they throw him over and the weeds are around his neck. What is the agent of the mercy of God? The whale. He could have let him die and said, I'll find another more merciful servant to represent me. But Jonah, I need to teach you a lesson about the mercy of God. And, and all of a sudden, Jonah spends three days in the belly of a whale, coughed back up on the shore, probably all acidic in his whole uh, outward expression. He comes walking into Nineveh, and he preaches a repentance sermon. And I'm still really wondering where the heart of the repentance sermon was. 
But notice how powerful the word of God is. Even if the servant of God had the wrong spirit, the word of God accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. And now he sits on the hill and he's waiting for him to be destroyed. But the story unfolds for the people of Nineveh. They rent their clothes and they sat in sackcloth and ashes and they repented before God. And Jonah says this remarkable statement to God. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you'd show mercy. You brought me all the way here to do the very thing I knew you would do that I didn't want you to do. And we're left with Jonah upset on a hillside, wishing that people would die and go to hell instead of filled with the mercy of God. Theology of forgiveness and mercy is in the, in the New Testament in the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer at the very end in Matthew chapter 6 verses 12. Look there. This is remarkable. Matthew chapter 6, he unfolds this remarkable characteristic of forgiveness and he says this alarming statement in Matthew chapter 6 and he gets to the end of this section and he says this, for if you forgive, this is verse 14, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, Jesus is embedding this in the mindset of his disciples. Don't be an unforgiving person. I mean, we have these verses in 1 John chapter 1. Don't you think this is one of the most glorious uh, texts about forgiveness? 1 John 1, 9. If you and I confess our sin, he is faithful and will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Man, if that doesn't just set your heart at ease, that there's never going to be a moment when you can't reach out to a merciful God who will hear you, who knows your sin problem, that when you humble yourself, you confess your sin, he will forgive you. If you're here this morning, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior, and you're thinking back to Genesis chapter three at the original sin that still resides in your soul and still has, a, has an issue in your life because you cannot or will not be allowed into the kingdom of heaven without this sin problem being taken care of. And you can't do it on your own, but there is one who can do it for you and has done it for you. He has shed his own blood on the cross, paid the price for your sin, and all you have to do is this. Humble yourself this morning in the quietness of your own pew, your own home, your own vehicle after this service and say, Lord, I need forgiveness for my sin. I'm on my way to hell unless you would save me. And I believe in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it says that if I confess with my heart genuinely the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God had raised him from the dead, guess what will happen for you? You will be saved. You will be saved from the wrath to come that so many will be be ushered into separation and eternity in hell but you will be saved because of the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. Don't play fast and loose and think to yourself, well, I'll have tomorrow. I'll think about it a little more. All you know you have is right now. Call out to him. Jesus displays this. Isn't this remarkable? One of the most horrific settings of the cross. Jesus beaten, bruised, 
cat of nine tails whipped his back, a crown of thorns nailed to a cross, and he, and he somehow gets enough breath to be able to say to the people, to, to the Father in heaven, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. There could not be a greater display of the mercies of the living God that he would, he would nail his own son to the cross to pay for our sin. So that that day, that thief that was berating him, all of a sudden said to the other one, stop it, we deserve to be here. We are sinners. This man's done nothing wrong. And Jesus looks at this man hanging on the cross and says, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. How beautiful the words for that last dying breath of a man who deserved eternal separation and punishment in hell. And Jesus, through the forgiving work of his shed blood, he he said to him, you are not gonna have that fate. Today, you and I, we're going to paradise. Forgiveness is that dimension Think about Acts chapter seven. Stephen is at at a point where they pull him aside. He speaks this in in Acts chapter seven, verse 60. They're all about ready to stone him. And he says these words, Lord, do not hold this against their account. Oh, forgiveness is everywhere. The New Testament church displays this in Ephesians chapter four, where Paul says to them, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. From Genesis to Joseph to David in the Psalms to the prophets like Jonah to Jesus hanging on the cross to his disciples afterward. You know what is the constant thread of the theology of forgiveness? That wherever sin was present and it was genuinely called on to to humble themselves and repent of that sin, every single time it was granted by the Father. There was never a moment where you ever see, come back later. I'll think about it. Our Father in heaven loves to forgive. He doesn't, isn't just something he does. It's something he enjoys to put himself on display so that when you and I call out because of our sin, we are left in the majesty of his presence going, God, you have no, I have no right to ask this of you, but you so graciously give this to me. And all of a sudden your heart is set back into restoration with the Father in heaven and with the Son and with the work of the Spirit now no longer uh, convicting you in your conscience and you are free. And I don't know about you, but I prefer freedom. I prefer freedom from my sin, freedom to be restored, freedom to humble myself before God and say, do for me what I could never do for myself. Here's a couple of things to consider, questions for you to think on. How forgiving of a person are you? What's it gonna take? What circumstance or brokenness that will occur in your life that all of a sudden you would honestly say, no, I'm not gonna forgive? You can't. You must not. Do you forgive as Christ forgave you? Do you hold grudges and retain bitterness in your heart against other believers or perhaps a spouse or children or 
other members within the body or people, Christians that you know at work. How long does it honestly take you before you're finally willing to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness when you know that you've sinned? Does it take you days? Maybe, hopefully it's less time than that, but I've, I've found that for many occasions, people live a long time of their life, lengthy periods being unforgiven and not seeking forgiveness. How well do you do at maintaining it? See, once you grant it, that's, the only, that's another challenge because since you can't forgive and forget because you always remember what they've done, there's a maintenance side of forgiveness that every time it comes up in your mind, you have to remind yourself of the promise that you granted to another person as a believer. Yes, no, I forgave them. I will not allow that thought to be embitter my mind and embitter my heart. All of these come out of Matthew as all of these are built off of this theology of forgiveness is then launched into in Matthew chapter 18. Where we know the passage in Matthew 18, 15 where Jesus is now instructing his disciples on what to do if a brother sins against another brother. If you were in the starting point class, we spent the entire time talking about this text this morning. Now out of this idea in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, the the reality of the subject of forgiveness surfaces again. Now here's what I want you to know and be able to write down as we walk through this two part uh, so that you have the main idea of Matthew 18 built on this theology of forgiveness is that judicial forgiveness is the model for relational forgiveness. See, you and I forgive one another because judicially the Father through the work of the Son has forgiven us. For us to say, I don't want to forgive you, begins to tamper with the way people begin to perceive God's judicial forgiveness. In fact, judicial forgiveness is that picture so that we can say, forgive as Christ forgave you. Here's one way we, God can forgive in a way that we can't. We can't forgive original sin. We cannot, through all of our, 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 fleshly, our, our fleshly heart, we cannot forgive that takes away original sin. So if you're here this morning and you've never for, been forgiven and called out to him and confessed your sin, only Jesus can do that for you. Just thinking that you can be right with a whole bunch of, of, of people in a room is not the goal. The goal is to be right with God. And you cannot be right with God until you humble yourself and deal with the sin issue and the sin problem that each one of us face. And he'll take that sin. He's already taken it and Jesus has paid for it. You just have to repent of your sin and he will, and he will forgive you. But that judicial forgiveness begins to display the very mercies of God. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 as he launches into this particular, uh, right before he gets to this parable, he says this. It says, then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, as we begin, this is the only version we're going to cover in this parable. We're going to launch into the, all the, the parable of the unforgiving servant next week. But I want you to grasp the purpose behind the parable. Peter's listening to Jesus' teaching on Matthew chapter 18, and it instigates a question in his mind. And as Peter often did in much in his, in, in his position, he would just ask, Lord, what do you mean? 
You know, and I can only imagine, uh, you know, there's some speculation to some degree as Peter trying to say, like, I'm going to be really good and I'm going to offer seven instead. And so he's kind of uh, conjecturing. He's saying, this question comes to my mind, Jesus, how many times do I have to go through and deal with Matthew 18 if my brother or sister offends me and sins against me? Is there a limit to this? Because that's what he's really asking. Is there a limit to this whole process? And Jesus responds to him. I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter has been learning and he's been putting himself at the feet of Jesus. Jesus called him in that discipleship work. And now Peter, some of your translations, the King James translation, the NAS translation will say something like 70 times seven. And then other translations like the ESV will say 77 times. Now, the point of it is, is don't get caught up with a calculator. If you want to say 70 times seven and you end up with 490 and on the 491st time you say no. He is not trying to help you with math. That's not his intent. His intent is to help you see how benevolent the father is by the work of the mercy of the son so that every single time you ask yourself, is there a limit to this? When people sin against me, you'll say, there is no limit. I forgive all the time, every time. And if I don't, I then become a sinner. You you get yourself in this interesting conundrum when all of a sudden someone comes to you and says, uh, and this uh, this happens on occasion, do you really, at times when someone sins against you, do you really want to forgive them if it's just up to you? Like, do you notice in your heart, they come to you and they say, I've got nowhere else to go. And what do you lie to them and say, sure I do, but I really don't mean it? Many people do. Or are you gonna be honest and say, I'm not ready but what does that say about you? You're so intent about pointing the finger at someone else, and now, when you're not ready to forgive, now the finger's pointed at you, and God's saying, what is your problem? God wants to put himself on display, and you and I are so much like Jesus when we forgive. You want to take a moment of your life that happens on a regular basis, where you want to say to yourself, I want to be like Jesus, then be forgiving all the time. Don't question it. Don't wonder if this is where you should do or why you should do it. Grant it. Peter begins to unfold this. And why would he say that? Lord, how about seven times? I mean, in the Old Testament, the the Jewish priests would often, in their oral traditions, try to understand, okay, well, what is the limits and the extent of the law that is required? And then they would write down in what they understood as the Talmud, all the Jewish and oral interpretation of the law. And they would say, well, if if this happened and your donkey fell into this, uh, you know, know, ditch over here, and it happens to be Sabbath, well, you probably shouldn't leave, leave them there, or it's okay. Well, the same kind of thing was going on in the Talmud, that this statement is being built off of. And in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, the oral interpretation was expressed in Jewish thought that if you forgave at least three times, and this is built according to the Jewish Talmud off Amos chapter two, verse six, where it says, all these things God's, uh, does God do twice and three times with a man. And so they would say, based upon the oral tradition of the Jewish law, 
these priests would say, you know what? According to God, we can only do it. A limit is three, and then we can be done with it. So Peter grabs hold of this Jewish Talmudic tradition and says, how about seven? Now, I mean, you got to give him an applause a little bit because he didn't stop at uh, the traditions of men. He's trying to say, Jesus, I've learned something from you at this point. I've been traveling with you and I caught a few things. Forgiveness is a pretty big deal. So let's go with seven. That seems like the seven number of creation. Maybe that's what he was thinking. But he gives this lofty number of seven and then Jesus says, no, Peter. And he gives this adversative conjunction to say, no, not this, but as far as this. And he's saying, not like this, like this is my mercy. And as Peter begins to understand the work of Christ, this principle emerges. I love how one uh, particular commentator, uh, Leon Morris, describes it. He says, it is no satisfactory line of conduct for the believer For the believer is to be found along the path, not of calculating numbers of offenses, but forgiving every single time. The goal isn't 77 or 490. The goal is every time that you see your sin and you're willing or you've been sinned against, forgiveness is possible when you have the heart of Christ. Believer, this morning as we think about this, it's supposed to leave us with a sense of gravity of the mercies of God through the Son, Jesus Christ. All redemptive history is built on the forgiveness that would be available at the cross of Jesus Christ. That your sin and my sin, it had a payment and it didn't just cost nothing, it cost God his own son. So when we begin to play fast and loose with the theology of forgiveness, mercy is minimized and God is trying to exalt the son He alone, Hebrews 1.3 says, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being. And forgiveness is at the heart of of his mission to come and save the world. Believers, that was you and that was me. He loved us enough to save us. And you know what that means for us? Even as we just get into this one verse, as we're gonna launch into this parable next week, that forgiveness is limited, or is limitless, because mercy is bottomless. Mercy, forgiveness is limitless, because the mercy of God is just bottomless. You and I will spend eternity in heaven recognizing the bottomless, infinite nature of God's mercy on your behalf. And it will take an infinite amount of your life to recognize the mercy that has been afforded to you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, then let us not be stingy. When people sin against us, forgive Let's be a forgiving community because it's the only way that a community of believers who are diverse in their backgrounds and history and come from all walks of life and different levels of spiritual maturity that are growing as one body, that prayer of the high priestly prayer of Jesus, please help them be one. The only way that that's possible is that we get the forgiveness from Jesus Christ and the the constant forgiveness of one another. And I would ask you, 
members of the chapel, will you commit yourself to living this kind of lifestyle? Because if you, if you choose not to, apart from this, you don't display the mercies, the bottomless mercies of Jesus Christ. We can be united and have freedom without fear, knowing that even at times when I do stupid things and I get caught up in my own ways and, and I sin against my wife or my children or another brother and sister, that forgiveness is available so often in the, in the process of relational forgiveness. I just go back and say, I don't have anywhere else to go. I have nowhere else. I, 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 have, I have to come to you. I know you even maybe not want to hear this right now. But Jesus tells me to come and humble myself before you. And what that person is doing is they're falling down before them, begging on behalf of Jesus Christ and the other believer, show mercy, show mercy. Mercy will be given to you the way you show it to other people, Jesus said. How will it be shown to you? Will it be shown to you the way that you're this benevolent, merciful individual because you know how much you have been forgiven. If we commit ourselves to that, we will be known by, a community, by being a community of people who display the bottomless mercies of the living God and his redemptive work of the Son. And if you're here this morning, let me come back to you if you're not a believer. The mercy of God is available to you. He wants you before his throne of grace. He wants you calling out to him. And he will grant you the very thing that you could never grant yourself. Forgiveness and freedom by the work of his son. As we launch into this parable next week, I pray that you and I, our hearts, would begin to be stirred and begin to develop this, found, this, this theological foundation of how important forgiveness is. It is one of those subjects, as I, as I help in the church, as your shepherd, and as, as individuals, this is a subject that comes across so regularly in the life, in life in community together. We must be forgiving people. Would you commit yourself to that before the Lord today? I hope you will. Because as we go and we take the, the Lord's table together, guess what? This is the expression of the symbolic unity that we have in Christ and with one another. If you don't want to forgive your brother and sister and you're not wanting that, please, maybe you need to wait. If you're an unbeliever here this morning as we go to take this, the, the Lord's table, you probably don't even understand it. It's okay for you to, we just ask. You don't even have to take it. Just take the time to think about the mercies of God and that your sin could be forgiven because that's what this element is all about. The bread that represents his broken body and the juice that represents his blood that was spilt. It's okay to sit there and be able to reflect on these things. Christians, examine yourself as the worship team comes up as I pray here in a moment. Uh, I will come down and just give you a moment as you come and get the elements and make your way back to your seat to examine your own heart and the kind of person. Please be forgiving. Commit yourself to that for the, for the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, we cannot be merciful people unless our hearts have been changed by the merciful work of your son, Jesus Christ. We even come as a body here together this morning 
Lord, looking to remember your shed blood for us, the forgiveness that was granted to us on the cross. Remembering the words that you would say on the cross, Father, forgive them. You don't, they don't even know what they're doing. Lord, please help us never to take for granted what you have so freely provided to us by the mercies of God. Lord, that this mercy would be the thing that fuels our sanctification and our drive to be forgiving people. Lord, we thank you for this, for, for the Lord's table. We thank you for the memorial that it is to us so that we can constantly remind ourselves of what it costs you to bring us salvation. Lord, help us as we examine ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.